Pro Se, Law360's weekly podcast. I'm your host, Amber McKinney, and I'm here with my co-host, Alex Lawson. Amber, hello. So good to see you. Good to be with you, Alex. We don't have Haley Kanath this week. She's out sick, but happy to talk with you, Alex. Yeah, always great to talk with you. I wanted to begin the show with a news item that actually happened just before we recorded last week, and we didn't get a chance to get to it, so we're a little bit tardy here, but Ray Liotta died last week, and he was an amazing actor who was in a million, you know, iconic movies, Goodfellas, Something Wild, uh, etc., But I, of course, wanted to highlight uh, what I thought was actually a pretty great late career performance from him as a lawyer in Marriage Story. Do you remember this performance, Amber? I do. And I actually really loved that movie. And he was great in the role. Yeah. And um, honestly, I thought, I think, like, Laura Dern, uh, I think she won an Oscar for that movie, if I'm not wrong. Honestly, hard for Laura Dern not to steal the show in any movie. She's a treasure. Um, But... I don't think there was a weak performance at all in that movie. No, no. I mean, that is just to say, um, I thought he um, was every bit as as good as her. He had this like really kind of like mannered sort of quasi-corporate divorce lawyer approach. And that that movie does a really great job of like portraying the different types of people who practice family law, divorce law. And he occupies a specific sort of uh, sector there. It's a great it's a great movie and a great performance by him and uh he will be missed so just i didn't want it to go unremarked upon in the pro se canon that's all yeah glad you brought that up well i want to stay in the realm of celebrity news because we had of sort course. of the end of a trial that everyone was watching which was johnny depp and amber heard's defamation case that concluded this week with johnny depp largely prevailing And I wanted to break down the legal issues, not as much just the salacious stuff that went on, which I think was broadly covered. But to do that, a little later in the show, I have a chat with Jeff Lewis, who's a defamation and appellate attorney, gives some really good insight into what happened in that trial. Do you mean to say we booked a defamation and appellate lawyer to talk about this and not some TikToker who's uh, barely out of high school? I mean, what (laughs) is our problem? Uh, We're so nerdy here. There's been a lot of sort of surface area, borderline unethical sort of discussion of what's going on in the trial. And I'm uh, very happy that we got some some expertise there on the actual legal issues, which are hugely important and uh, and, and the implications of, uh, of a case like this. But before then, we have some news to get to. And we will begin with a return to the old, the tried and true Trump Russia beat. Amber, are you so pumped? Sure, Alex. I'm really pumped. <laughs> uh, you know, I I grouse about this because I don't yeah. love talking about these stories, but there was an important acquittal that we need to talk about. Yes. Um, this is um, an interesting little story. Like I say, this deals with the accusations of collusion between uh, the 2016 Trump campaign and Russia and more importantly, the various investigations that have unspooled from that saga. So this week, like you say, Amber, uh, we saw a former Clinton campaign lawyer acquitted on charges that he lied to the FBI when he told them about a potential leak between Trump and this Kremlin-affiliated bank. Now, this is a really weedy case, but it fits within a bigger political picture about a lot 
you know, lots of partisan sniping about these various Trump Russia investigations and then counter investigations. And like you, Amber, I have my reservations about talking about this stuff anymore because it's both of questionable legal weight, but also extremely confusing. But I think this is a good time as any to kind of break down where we stand in this saga. Alex, I'm going to hit you with my confusion right in the beginning, which is <laughs> there have been more than one probe here, right? I mean, I remember the FBI was probing Trump's Russia ties, but this is actually about a separate yet related probe. Yeah. So it's important to sort out like how we got here. And I promise I will give you the abridged version of this history. I think most people remember that the FBI began investigating Trump's Russia ties soon after he was elected. That gave way to the appointment of special counsel Robert Mueller, which delivered its own report. But the case we're talking about today actually grew out of a different probe that was formed in 2019. This is after the Mueller report is published, and that effectively clears Trump of improper collusion with Russia. But after that, Trump appointed his own special counsel. It was sort of his own rejoinder to Mueller. He appointed a former U.S. attorney for Connecticut whose name is John Durham, and he basically inv- he appointed him to investigate the origins of the FBI's investigation for some improper activity or some political, you know, retribution type of stuff. So if you're keeping score at home, we are talking about Trump's appointment of an independent counsel to basically investigate his investigators. Does this make sense to you, Amber? Sadly, it does. Yeah, I I get what you're saying. Yes. So since then, again, um, Durham was appointed in 2019, and it's sort of moved along steadily, a little bit under the radar, both because bigger news stories have happened, COVID, et cetera, and also just a general loss of interest in stories like this. Moving along a little bit under the radar, they got a guilty plea from a former FBI lawyer for falsifying material to obtain a surveillance order. But here, though, Durham was going after a much bigger fish. He brought a charge against a lawyer named Michael Sussman, who is a former Perkins Coie partner with deep ties to Democratic leadership and who worked for the 2016 campaign. So that is who was on trial here. I've really grumbled a lot as we started talking about this, which, as everyone knows, makes for great audio. Um, But I am more intrigued You've grumbled and you've groused. I have. I've done both. Uh, But I'm actually more intrigued now because we're firmly in the world of Law 360 with a former big law partner. This is a named known person that I think, Mm -hmm. you know, has a lot of name recognition among the kind of people that listen to our show. So what were they trying to prove against Sussman? The trial that wrapped up this week focused on a meeting that Sussman had with the FBI in September of 2016, where he informed the Bureau about information that he had uncovered about potential ties between the Trump Organization and Alpha Bank, which is a Russian bank that has deep ties to the Kremlin and Russian leadership. Now, I should say straight out, just on the sort of substance of this, The FBI looked into this link and decided that it had no merit. So I just want to like say that clearly, just because it's kind of a salacious claim. 
which is why this drew so many eyeballs. But I just want to be clear on that. They looked into this claim. There was nothing to it. But the issue here is, um, and the issue at trial, is what was actually said at this meeting between Sussman and the FBI. Durham's prosecutors argued that Sussman told the agents that he was not there on behalf of any client. They argued, actually, he had been there representing the Clinton campaign, which was a client of his, hoping to drum up dirt ahead of the election. Sussman's defense team uh, argued that he was actually just there in his own capacity and that he only went to the FBI when he got word of a potential New York Times story about this Trump Alpha Bank link. And Clinton campaign officials testified that they had not directed Sussman to intervene and that it was actually against their interests for him to do so. So it's really, it just comes down to what he told them about who he was or was not representing, which is pretty granular, right? Like it's just about this one meeting that this lawyer had with the FBI and whether he was there on behalf of the Clinton campaign or not. And the analysis of this point at trial actually got pretty granular. Um, the jury, as the trial was winding down, asked to review exhibits that were um, expense reports that Sussman had filed pertaining to the, the cab rides that he had taken to and from the FBI meeting in 2016. Now, those rides were expensed to his firm, Perkins Coie, not to the Clinton campaign. So that would seem to back up his lawyer's version of events that he was just there of his own accord, not on behalf of a client. Otherwise, he would have billed them. Honestly, I know you said that this was sort of <laughs> a really granular look at how this all unfolded, but that little detail I sort of love. Like, how do you know what a <laughs> lawyer was really up to? Check out who they charged for Check the, the billing. I, follow the money. I mean, that's a, that's a tale <laughs> as old as time, right? Well, I mean, you did say, I mean, Sussman walked. I mean, he was acquitted here. So tell us more about how that went down. I should say straight out that the charge here was lying to the FBI, which is already kind of a small potatoes type of charge. You saw a lot of this in the Mueller probe as well. And I think the general consensus is that this is kind of the charge you bring if you don't really have anything more substantive, like criminal collusion or obstruction or anything like that. You can always try and trip someone up on some misleading or false statement they may have made to the government, right? And that's sort of like a, it's seen as kind of a backstop or catch-all type of thing. So it's already kind of a low-level charge. But even that didn't work um, for the Durham team here. The jury acquitted Sussman after a few hours of deliberation. You won't be surprised to know that Sussman's lawyers basically painted the whole thing as a political hit job, and it didn't work. Here was a statement that his lawyers released. Quote, this is a case of extraordinary prosecutorial overreach, and we believe that today's verdict sends an unmistakable message to anyone who cares to listen. Politics is no substitute for evidence, and politics has no place in our system of justice, which gets to the bigger picture here, which I'll, which I'll explain um, a little more later. Durham, for his part, said he was disappointed in the outcome, but he stood by the case on its merits. You know, from a, in, in a big picture sense, this is kind of a, to the extent that anyone cares about the Durham probe, um, this is a pretty big black eye for them. They've been working for about three years, still just have the one conviction uh, under their belt. 
They are preparing for another trial in the fall against a Russian national who, again, this is about lying to the FBI, who purportedly lied to the FBI about his sources relating to the now discredited Steele dossier. If that becomes newsworthy, we will update you on it, but that's set for the fall. It's not really clear how much longer the Durham probe is going to run, but if you take on balance the resources they've put in and the results they've gotten in court, it appears to be ending with just a little bit of a whimper. For our next story, I'm going to take a hard pivot here. We're going to talk about more legal drama with the NFL. Feels like this happens every week. There is a lot of it, and I'm frankly thrilled to hear you talking about it. (laughs) Well, look, in fairness, it is about the NFL, but it's really about retirement plans and um, Of course, yeah, benefits. So that's not something that I shy away from. That's right in my wheelhouse. So that's what I want to get into. Yeah, and this is a super interesting story about, obviously, the, the NFL's like benefits and retirement plan is always under a microscope. And anytime it bubbles up into a contentious legal proceeding, we're going to be paying attention. Everyone pays attention. So let's break it down a little bit. Yeah. So last week, a Texas federal judge found that the plan violated federal benefits law when it refused to place a star running back in a higher benefits class because theirs is grouped in different classes that get different benefit levels. The judge was really pretty brutal about this, tore into the plan in general, saying it had a history of selectively reviewing former players' applications for disability benefits Mm -hmm. and basically abusing discretion. Okay. This is kind of a, and this gets into benefits law generally, and it, it's, it's like, like I say, it's under a, a much more intense microscope when it's like a public-facing institution like the NFL. But it's a little bit of a Byzantine kind of system. You would think that the players would be able to just kind of easily tap into the benefits after playing a game that, like, by design ruins your body and sometimes, unfortunately, your mind and all manner of other things. But it seems like it's like a little bit difficult to navigate. Sure. I mean, I don't know that it would really surprise too many people to hear that getting benefits from a former employer can sometimes be tough. Uh, This is just sort of a bigger (laughs) example of that because it is so public facing being the NFL. But the issue here, it was raised by a former New England Patriots running back, Michael Cloud, who... I don't know who that is, other than for the context of this case. Don't know if... Alex, is that a famous player? No. I mean, you actually referred to him as a star player, which I don't think is technically right, but not really germane to this conversation anyway. Um, Yeah, uh, he was a role player. I believe he was on at least one or two of their early Super Bowl teams, but... um, Thank you. Appreciate that context, which I completely lack. Yeah, so... Yeah, that's all right. Cloud had a reclassification application denied in 2016, despite a bunch of health issues that stemmed from repeated concussions, which, of course, is what you would expect to be this, this to be all about since it's the NFL. There was a bench trial, and Cloud's attorney said that the Super Bowl winner injured, quote, virtually every aspect of his body. Um, he had suffered seven concussions, more than 20 instances of getting hit so hard in the head that his vision went black. He ultimately had to retire in 2005 because of um, what the, his counsel called cumulative mental disorders. And the U.S. Social Security Administration judge that heard this found Cloud totally and permanently disabled in June 2014, and Cloud then appealed for a reclassification within the retirement plan. That application, though, was denied. 
Yeah, okay. If a judge says that you're totally and permanently disabled, and then is the the idea then is that you get you're applying for I just want to be clear on it's like more what, fulsome benefits. Yeah. So basically, on what applying going, for reclassification means. Yeah. yeah. You 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 get more fulsome benefits. Yeah. He wanted to go from a lower tier with a lower amount of benefits to a higher class. So all the details okay. of that are get a little um more detailed than I think we want to go here. But that's the idea that he basically was saying okay. I was injured so completely that I should be in the highest class and get the fullest benefits the NFL NFL plan has to offer. So his request for those more extensive benefits is denied. And then he sues over that. And then we have a decision now. And the judge says that the NFL basically, or that the NFL's plan, I suppose, completely messed this up. Yes. So it's a district court judge and it's um, Karen Grenscholler. And that judge said the plan violated the Employment Retirement Income Security Act, which I think I set up top ERISA, all the cool kids, you know, just use that acronym. Um, <laughs> you love yeah, to so, use the acronym first and <laughs> then tell us what it is. Yeah, that's, some real, that's some real legal, that's some sure. real legal reporter stuff. Yeah. <laughs> so the judge said that denying Cloud's application was a clear violation of that federal law and that Cloud definitely qualifies for and should be placed in the plan's highest benefit tier. The judge was pretty strident about this. Um, it was an oral ruling. She said it's, quote, very apparent that the plans board spent virtually no time making its decision. She called the plans practice, quote, wrong and absurd. And also went on to say that the plan is, quote, broke and it's time to fix it. I mean, that's like you say. I mean, that, that there's no mincing of words there. I, it's one thing for a judge to rule on the question before him or her. And this judge obviously felt that what's going on with this NFL retirement plan is like sort of endemically broken. Or yeah. You know, it, it, there, are, there are endemic problems that obviously, I mean, maybe they've come before her uh, previously and it's, it's something that she's observed. Um, can you tell us more about the, about how maybe this wasn't such an, an isolated incident? That's exactly it, Alex. That Cloud was allegedly one of thousands of former players in very similar situations. And I think it's no secret at this point that concussions and severe injuries can be quite prevalent in former NFL players. So that much the, we can say. Yes, yeah. I would say that that's that that's correct. <laughs> yes. So the judge said among thousands of potential former players that should have been classified in higher tiers, only 30 former players were receiving benefits at that plan's highest tier. Three zero. That's not wow. a lot. Um, all of them suffered injuries that either fully or partially paralyzed them. So that's how bad it had to be for the plan to say you get the, you know, big kahuna of benefits. Wow. Here. That's that's really crazy. I mean, yeah, the idea, right? I mean, it's it's such a violent game. It has violent outcomes and impacts. And the idea that it would have to be that severe to get the best suite of benefits. Pretty, it's pretty, pretty bad. shocking. Yeah. Cloud's attorney said the plan's been violating ERISA in this way for years um, by just repeatedly failing to fully review players' files and voting on application in groups of about 50 at a time. So the allegations here are that they just were taking a lot of shortcuts to avoid putting people in the highest plan. Mm. Um, it yeah. often didn't even discuss individual cases. It talked about them as a group to make these decisions. All of these allegations mm. are pretty bad. Now, what has the, both in this case and just kind of generally, I mean, what what was the NFL plan arguing about its well, ability to, to administrate benefits this way? 
The plan kind of pushed back on the idea that there's thousands of problems out there in their administration of the plan. Pointed out that CloudSuit was one of less than 20 to ever be filed over one of its decisions. And his was actually the first case that got all the way to discovery and depositions. The plan also basically just doubled down on its decision about Cloud's individual benefits, saying he was exactly where he should be. And the plan said he failed to show that he developed a new disability condition between when his original application was reviewed in 2014 and when his reclassification application came to them in 2016. They said he hadn't shown enough change there for them to make a change in where he was categorized. The judge... Didn't love that, though. Uh, Fully rejected it. Said the plan has essentially taken the position of, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Yeah, you can see how, especially with something this vast, that like a certain kind of bureaucracy can take hold in the way that you just kind of, like you say, you're like grouping these these claims together, maybe a couple dozen at a time, saying, "Uh, yes, no. Sounds like the judge didn't didn't love that uh, in this context. Can you contextualize this for us? I mean, it seems like a pretty big black eye for the administrators of these benefits here. But um, what's kind of the what's the broader outlook? Big loss for the plan, for sure. I think we'll see potentially follow on type um, suits around some of these other denials. Um, that mm-hmm. remains to be seen, but given the fact that there are potentially thousands of players who have not been moved up in tiers, that could likely happen. Uh, it's also a loss for uh, Groom Law Group, which advises the plan on benefits decisions and actually represented it in this case. The firm, I want to be clear, wasn't a defendant here, but the judge was still pretty mad at them. <laughs> um, <laughs> the judge said that that firm abused its discretion in relation to its role in denying Cloud's request. So I think the plan and the firm that works with the plan are going to have to do a real rethink of how they're addressing these issues moving forward. For the last six weeks, America has been transfixed by a splashy celebrity trial a defamation case between Johnny Depp and his ex-wife, Amber Heard, that's featured dueling testimony about abuse. On Wednesday, the jury found Depp had been defamed by an op-ed Heard wrote for the Washington Post and awarded $15 million in damages. Heard also prevailed on one allegation against Depp for $2 million. There's a lot to discuss here, and to do it, we're joined by Jeff Lewis, a Southern California attorney focusing his practice on defamation and appeals, perfect for this case, He's also the co-host of the California Appellate Law Podcast. Welcome to Pro Se, Jeff. Thanks for having me. So over the last few weeks, you basically couldn't get away from this trial. I mean, it was all over the news. People were watching it so closely. And for most people, they were really focused on the salacious stuff, you know, details about the alleged abuse on both sides. And largely that testimony, I think, overshadowed the legality here and and what legal issues were even at play. So as we start, can you just set up our listeners with what was this case really about again? Yeah, at its heart, uh, Amber Heard authored an op-ed that appeared in the Washington Post that described herself as a survivor of domestic abuse. And Johnny Depp sued her for defamation, and then she, in turn, sued Johnny Depp back for defamation for statements that Johnny's lawyers made about the case. And they were alleging some pretty eye-popping numbers. I think his suit was for $50 million 
dollars in damages and hers was for a hundred million, if I got that right. Right. Yeah. Well, eye popping, yes. But if you think about the uh, uh, millions that actresses and actors can make in Hollywood, uh, I don't know if they were that eye popping. Yeah, you make a good point there. That's true. So that's the framework, you know, the basics of what we're dealing with here. I would like to get into some highlights. Um, maybe not so much the salacious stuff. I think people have heard a lot about that, unless you think it's relevant to how this turned out. But I'm just interested in what testimony you heard over the weeks of this trial that stood out to you as, you know, maybe clues about why Johnny Depp ultimately was the big winner here. Well, the two most important pieces of evidence that the jury probably gave a lot of weight to, number one, that knife. Uh, Amber Heard gifted Johnny a knife. And Johnny Depp's lawyers didn't take a picture of it. They brought the knife to court and showed that to a jury and said, who gives their abuser a knife? Uh, I think that was impactful. And the second thing is all the audio. And in particular, there was audio of Amber Heard taunting Johnny Depp saying, who is going to believe that you, Johnny Depp, is a victim of domestic violence? I suspect, I don't know, but I suspect the jury found those two pieces of evidence highly relevant. Um, On the other side, though, Amber Heard testified for the first time ever, and she's been deposed and testified in a lot of trials, about sexual assault. Her testimony was riveting and gripping and awful in terms of what she described and what she went through. And uh, although the jury did not find in her favor in terms of sexual assault, uh, that, that testimony was probably the most powerful testimony that Amber Heard offered. Yeah, I think that there was just so much to latch onto here in terms of the details of this case. And the public really had an opinion. I mean, the Internet over the past few weeks, it seemed pretty clear that the public was largely on Johnny Depp's side. I don't know if that's because of what they were hearing as the the testimony came out or if Johnny Depp's just the bigger star and they just generally like him better. But I'd like your thoughts on how that played into what happened here. I know, for example, the jurors were not sequestered. Is there any concern that they may have heard some of this stuff as well? I would fully expect that the lawyers on both sides will interview jurors and do investigations and hire private investigations to find out the answer to that question. When I went to law school, uh, O.J. Simpson was on trial and the jury was sequestered. There was no TikTok video. There was no memes. And that jury was pretty well uh, hidden from the media. I don't know in this day and age how a jury can be hidden from social media to that degree. Yeah. I mean, I think even if you didn't want to follow this trial, it just (laughs) seemed to be everywhere. It is hard to get away from something that is so widely publicized. I mean, it wasn't just legal outlets like Law 360 reporting on it. It was the nightly news had stuff about this. Yeah. So other than the jurors not being sequestered, I mean, I guess I just have the general feeling of As you watch this play out, do you think the jurors sided with Johnny Depp because they actually heard stuff or because they just had the same gut reaction that the general public did, that Johnny Depp and his legal team presented more compelling evidence? Yeah, I think it's the latter. And let me say this. There was no one piece of evidence that showed that Amber Heard lied. But there were lots of little pieces of evidence. You know, think about it as a brick and you're building a wall. Little pieces of evidence that... By the time Depp's legal team was done, they had constructed this wall of demonstrating that Amber Heard was not really credible. And uh, they did a masterful job. You're an an appellate attorney. I do want to turn a little bit to the appeals and maybe a little, 
you know, prognosticating about what happens next. I know Amber Heard has said she is likely to appeal. What issues do you think she'll bring up? What is ripe for that appeal? Well, Amber has already said that she, or through her attorneys, has said that they want to raise an issue regarding exclusion of evidence. And there are certain text messages and testimony and other evidence that Depside objected to for a variety of reasons and was thrown out of the case and the jury never heard. And so that will go up on appeal. That'll probably be their lead issue. But there's a lot of uh, other smaller issues that Heard could raise. You know, there was an earlier uh, denial, a motion for summary judgment by Heard. The Virginia's uh, anti-slap law was recently amended while these proceedings were underway. And it, it's an untested law. And so that law might be discussed in the context of an appeal. And Heard might also argue that the verdicts are inconsistent, that no rational jury could find that Depp's lawyers, when they said Amber Heard perpetrated a hoax, that that statement was false, and yet the domestic violence was found not to occur. How do you reconcile those two findings? Those are the issues that uh, Amber Heard will raise, and Johnny Depp has a couple he might raise as well. Have you seen things like that in the past in your experience where it is um, sort of a dueling allegations here and there's a win on one side and also one on the other, and it, it doesn't seem to comport? Like, it doesn't seem like they can both hold true. Yeah, let me say most people like me, the talking heads, really expected a, a one-sided verdict one way or another, not a mixed bag like this. Right. Uh, some might argue that the jury didn't like Depp as much as people think and tagged him for behavior that they didn't agree with. What do you make of it that this is really all hinges on the attorney? I mean, the, the thing that Amber Heard won on was that the attorney had alleged that it was all a hoax. Does that play into the appeal strategy or anything else we might see come next? Yeah, I wouldn't expect Johnny Depp to appeal on his own if Amber Heard were not appealing. But if she does appeal, and she says she will, I would expect Johnny Depp to appeal on this issue of Johnny being held liable for statements that his attorney made. And It's an interesting constitutional issue here. The U.S. Supreme Court says when you're a public figure and you sue for defamation, you have to prove that the speaker spoke with malice, meaning they didn't in their heart believe what they're saying is true. And here, Johnny Tepp is found liable for statements made by his lawyer. And the jury instructions and the special verdict were not clear about whether it was the lawyer who held malice in his heart and didn't believe mm. what he was saying is true or Johnny Depp. And I think Johnny Depp could bring a constitutional challenge to the verdict on this issue of malice. You know, you think this case can't get more interesting and then we have constitutional issues. So here we go. That sort of leads me to my sort of final question for you, which is, you know, you deal in defamation cases a lot in your practice. Is there any takeaways about defamation law or even just about these kind of celebrity battles moving forward? Or it, was this a unicorn? Was this a one-off, really unusual situation? It is unusual, but let me say this. I am defense-oriented. Most of my clients are defendants in defamation, not plaintiff. I oftentimes, when plaintiffs come to me, I say, look, you do not want this. You do not want to file this lawsuit and have this experience. The fact that Johnny Depp won and prevailed is going to make it a lot harder for me to convince plaintiffs that, well, maybe they should not yeah. file a lawsuit. But I do think in terms of star power and the resources that were brought to bear on this case, it really is a bit of a unit. Well, this has certainly been a unicorn I've enjoyed watching unfurl. I think the whole nation's been riveted. And I really appreciate you breaking it down with, for us. Can't wait to see what happens with the appeal. Yeah, thanks for having me.
our show with something offbeat. And Alex, I just want to get your take on what you think of when I say corporate espionage. Well, my mind leaps to movies, as it often does. Uh, great. And as we often talk about here, Inception is a great movie about corporate espionage. Uh, that takes place in the mind. So Still. that's pretty high stakes. Um, also, the uh, do you remember the... Uh, Michael Douglas, Demi Moore, sexual thriller, Disclosure. Remember that <laughs> movie? Yeah, that? That, was, that was in an era where there were a lot of movies kind of like that, <laughs> where it was um, high-powered people. Oh, yeah. And the sexual politics of that movie are really crazy now because she like tries to seduce him and he says no. And then she like accuses him of rape. And it's all like a cloak for this like extremely mid-90s virtual reality corporate espionage plot. Crazy movie. Anyway, those are the things that come to my mind when you say corporate espionage. You mean you don't think of the president of a home loan company allegedly sending her love interest and employee to work at a rival mortgage company to steal confidential information? Oh, and this all happens in Alabama. In Alabama. Um, I don't think that. But I know now that that is the story we're talking about. So <laughs> I would love to know more. I also don't, you know, like I said, I feel like a lot of these sort of like high stakes, you know, corporate espionage and litigation that flows from that takes place in sort of business and tech hubs. Yeah. New York, San Francisco, Los Angeles, et cetera. But like you say, we got we got a case brewing in Alabama here. And I don't mean to sort of it's just not what you think of as the venue for That's stuff right. like this. But this is a pretty interesting case. Well, look. I view this as sort of like, you know, the showrunner Mike Schur, who does things like yeah, Good course. Place and Brooklyn Nine-Nine. I think like this would be the plot he would use if he turned his talents toward a trade secrets story. This is like the Mike Schur plot. It all starts in Alabama in this with these <laughs> two small mortgage companies. I, I do want to stress as I get into the actual facts of what happened here. It's all allegations. This is from a complaint. So grain or, of yes. salt right off the top. Gotcha. Gotcha. So there's a woman named Paula Reeves. She's the president of CIS Financial Services. Her company has a rival, Movement Mortgage. That company is the one that filed the lawsuit, Movement. They say Paula came up with a shocking scheme. That shocking scheme was in quotes, if you couldn't hear that in my voice, uh, to <laughs> infiltrate their company. Paula became romantically involved with a man who worked for her company named Anthony Joyce. Then she allegedly called up the head of movements, Tuscaloosa office, and asked them to hire Tony. She conveniently left out that Tony worked for her. Tony was dating her. Uh, Tony was basically <laughs> going to be a plant at the rival company and steal operations materials. But turns out, movement did hire Tony. And when he got hired, he signed a confidentiality and a non-disclosure agreement. But a little agreement's not going to stop anything here couple of counterfactual things I want to consider here if like things had gone a different way. First of all, would have been really funny if he didn't get the job. Absolutely. Uh, because it's really funny if he goes to Paul and he's like, yeah, you know, uh, I just don't interview well. You know this. <laughs> uh, now, where do you want to go to dinner for the last time? <laughs> also, would have been funny if he did get hired, goes back and says, oh, well, you know, they asked me to sign an NDA. I mean... That kind of ruins the whole my plan, hands are tied. doesn't it? As though, the, as, as though they weren't doing something dishonest from the jump. It's <laughs> like, oh, well, I mean, 
I mean, I signed the NDA. I'm just going to try and sell mortgages over there. My hands are tied, like you say. Um, but that didn't happen. He got inside. What is our man Tony doing over there? Tony, our inside man, went through lengthy training. He kept track of everything he could take back to Paula, just, you know, copies of stuff to make her company better. Paula at one point texted him saying, quote, you could help me by keeping a journal of their training, their wins and fails. What are they good at? What are they poor at? She also texted Tony this. Movement mortgage is who we're trying to become. Stick it out. The like, the, the thing that's so charming to me about this, and again, I don't mean to sound like a, I'm not like discrediting what's like alleged in the complaint or, or anything like this, but like the low stakes of the like the, the <laughs> relatively low stakes of the thing is like so funny to me. Just like a couple of Alabama mortgage sellers just engrossed in like deep corporate subterfuge. It's kind There's of a romance. Yeah. To <laughs> me, it's kind of this idea of like, no part's a small part. It's just a small actor or like no problem's a small problem. If it happens to you, it's got that vibe where this is technically corporate espionage. It might not be yeah. in a boardroom in New York City, but it's still happening. Yeah. And well, and you mentioned, so she sent him a text and, you know, about saying, Here, here's what we're trying to do. Here's what I want you to do. I have to imagine that that was kind of a, you know, smoking gun here. Well, look, the fact that I read a bunch of text messages just now means they're all in the complaint. Um, they're in the complaint. Yes. <laughs> texting will get you. I've learned that repeatedly. Every on time. Law 360's Pro Se podcast, we have stories do all the time where people... Just text up a storm, any bad thing they're thinking about. So Paula loved to text. She sent messages to the assistant vice president at her company saying she was getting information about movement through Tony. And in those text messages, she boasted about having movement's proprietary sales manual. She said, quote, all of it. That, that's how much she had. Uh, she called it too secret and even said, quote, no one can know. So... She you know, not even just on. it's it's well, it's one thing to even text Tony, you know, who's involved in this, but she's texting other people. I mean, like, you know, I mean, I always feel like we ve like sometimes in a certain phylum of offbeat story, we always veer into trying to advise them to actually get away with it, which is kind of what I'm <laughs> doing now. Like, and I don't really condone this type of stuff if it if what's alleged is true. But like. It's just such an obvious misstep. Like you're, you're you're expanding the like web of people who even know about what's going on. Again, to me, this is very Mike Sure. I just imagine somebody in that Parks and yeah. Recreation office sending bad texts about something. It just has that vibe to me. That's how I'm plotting this out in my head. So just to kind of wrap this up, Tony allegedly copied a bunch of stuff for Paula, including that sales <laughs> and hiring manual I mentioned a minute ago, the entire underwriting process at Movement. He Logged in, got all that stuff and a bunch of other trade secrets, gave it right to Paula. This went on for about six months, so longer <laughs> than I would have expected, honestly. During the whole time, he did not open a single loan for movement. And that's the king stuff that we're talking about right now. The idea of you hang around for six months, not only are you gathering information you're not actively helping them either. The idea of not no. open, the idea of going to work for a for a company that sells loans or, or like you know does loans or whatever and not open a single loan for six months 
I mean, that's just that's that's classic walking between the raindrops type of stuff. Here's what I thought was really funny. This complaint's really a wild ride top to bottom, but the complaint points out like not only did he not close a single loan, he didn't open a single loan. He didn't even like start (laughs) the process with any potential clients. So, you know, basically the bottom line here is this is how you end up getting sued for violations of state and federal trade secrets laws, a bunch of computer crimes, civil conspiracy, tortious interference with a contract. I mean, it's all thrown at you when this is what you've allegedly done. To bring it back to where we began the conversation, this is sort of like an extremely watered down reboot of like Bonnie and Clyde or something. (laughs) This is like, this is how you sell Bonnie and Clyde to overseas markets that are sensitive about sort of that are like very puritanical or something where it's like, okay, do they rob banks at gunpoint? Well, no, they steal the company secrets of a rival mortgage company. Do they go down in a blaze of a hail of gunfire, a blaze (laughs) of glory? No, they get sued uh, for you know, some white collar uh, corporate crime. I, I mean, I think you also miss out some key elements of like Bonnie and Clyde at its heart is like a doomed love story. What is the pillow talk here? Like, let me tell you how they <laughs> underwrite their mortgages. It's let's do it, baby. Let's, <laughs> let's knock over this rival Alabama mortgage company for all they got. I want all of the details about how they underwrite mortgages. They have some crazy technology that we can't even <laughs> conceive of. Uh, That's the we need stuff. to get in there. That's the big <laughs> schemes we're going for. Um, yeah, yeah. I don't know, guys. I mean, our listeners out there, if you have any other wacky plots we should hear about, this has really tickled me on a deep level. Yeah. I've found this one very funny. I know it's, it is a serious allegation, but just where it's located and, and sort of the clumsy way they texted about everything, it just hits a real funny bone for me. Uh, it was a pleasure talking about it and a pleasure being on the show with you this week, Amber. Yeah, same to you, Alex. I also want to thank our producers, Kelly Marcano and Stephen Trader, our guests this week, Jeff Lewis, and our contributing reporters, Justin Wise, Katie Bueller, Lauren Berg, and Cara Salvatore. Music for our show comes from Silent Partner and Kelly Marcano. And if you like Pro Se, leave us a written review that helps other people find our show. If you want to read more about anything we talked about, check out our website. That's law360.com slash podcast. Thanks and see you back here next week.